0: I want to start with an informal survey this morning. Uh, Would you raise your hand if you're really good at hiding it when you've done the wrong thing? (laughs) You're not as good as you think because you just raised your hands. (laughs) I have never, ever been good at hiding it when I do the wrong thing. And anyone who knows what it's like to try to cover up their faults also knows that, among other things, it ruins the relationship when you're hiding. You know that, right? Uh, my wife and I lived in Red Bank for years, and we lived just uh, a very short distance from the church building where I had my office and where we met. And so I, I loved taking my bike into work. It would be a five-minute bike ride right down into the center of town. Uh, and that's how I got from where I lived to where I worked. And only a person who gets to have a commute on a bike knows how good that is. I, I know a lot of you right now hate me, but that's what it was like. And it was wonderful until the day that my bicycle was stolen right out of my driveway. And so I walked uh, in and not long after, I had a neighbor, he was a good friend, his name was Stan. He was on his way to work in his car. He pulled over seeing me walk and he asked me, Christian, what's going on? How come you're not riding your bike into work? Can I give you a ride? I let him give me a ride the rest of the way. I explained to him what had happened to my bicycle, and as soon as I told him, he immediately said, I have a bike that you can have and use whenever you want. Uh, I'd be really glad to loan it to you. Uh, Take it and use it whenever you want. It was a great bike. It was so much nicer than mine. It had a chain guard. uh, It had... Uh, tires that didn't leak air constantly. It had gears and it had shocks. It was great, uh, and you can tell where this story's going. I happily took his bike, and on the first day that I had it, I I rode into town. Uh, I met someone in the coffee shop, and I leaned it up against the parking meter there. Don't feel so bad for me. I'm kind of an idiot. <laughs> I just trust people, right? Why wouldn't I? And so I have my meeting, and then I go from the coffee shop over to the church, which is just a block or two from there. I have a high school group meeting. We have a great night. We have a meal with the kids. We talk about Jesus. We sing and play some games. The night winds down. I lead a meeting with the, the, uh, the folks, the young adults who are helping with the kids. It's done. I walk to get the bike and then realize I'd left it in front of the coffee shop. And, and was it there when I got back? No, of course not. And so I start to walk home, And for the first block, I'm strategizing on how I'm going to scrape together enough money to buy Stan a new bike. And then I realize I can't afford it. I can't replace it. And so the next two blocks are a strategy for how I will tell him in such a way that it doesn't seem like it's my fault. And then the last block is me realizing that's not going to work. And so I'm just going to hide it from him as long as I can, which I did. Now, he was a friend. Uh, He was my neighbor. We used to play cards together. We hung out socially all the time. And now listen, from the time that the bike was stolen and before I worked up the courage to tell Stan about it, our relationship was completely ruined. I couldn't be around him without feeling a lump in my throat. It was hard for me to look at him. I basically avoided him because I knew I'd done something wrong. But since I hadn't been able to tell him about it, there was a great distance between the two of us. And I thought I was the only one who knew about it. I'm sure he did too. But it really ruined our relationship. And what I want you to see now this morning is that's exactly how it is with you and God when you've done the wrong thing and you know it. And your strategy for dealing with it is to do your best to hide it away from God because you feel bad about it. And I'm sure of this, that in this room with all of you here, there's a huge variety of faith. Some of you Uh, are are Christians who are regularly looking at yourself and asking, how am I doing? Others of you aren't sure about faith. And every one of us, wherever we are, what will be true about all of us is when we're honest with ourselves, there'll be ways in which when we look at who we have become, we'll have to say we're we're pretty far away from what we think God would want. And so the question is, what will we do with that? And here's what I want to show you this morning. That prayer, which is this great gift that God gives us, this gift that tells us when we speak with God, he listens. If we listen, God speaks. The gift, and this is what we talked about last week, in which we're free to tell God whatever we're feeling, that gift will often be hindered when we become aware of our own shortcomings and our strategy is to keep a distance. But here, you'll see this now, we're invited when that's where we are to come freely to God and to tell him who we've become and then to receive the gift that comes with that confession. And whatever you've heard in the past with that word confession, I want you to set it aside and learn anew this morning. Then we're free to have our relationship with God restored so that we can be the people that we were meant to be, to have the joy and the freedom that God wants us to have so we can become the folks who go out into the world to show Jesus to others. Our teacher this morning is going to be a man named David. If you were here last week, uh, we were guided by uh, a, a prayer from the book of Psalms. Much of that book was written by David. This morning we'll learn from David in Psalm 51. And what we'll do is as we consider his prayer, we'll let it be a guide for us uh, for how we should pray in those moments when we've done the wrong thing and we know it. So Psalm 51. Uh, this is a prayer that comes uh, after he'd done something wrong. Uh, Here's how it begins. And this is verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here are the heartfelt words of a man who did something wrong and whose first strategy after he went down the wrong path was to hide it. He tried to keep it from the people it affected. He tried to keep it away from God. And then it became clear that he had in fact done something that he should not have done. And after seeing that mistake, that misdeed, that horrendous affair he'd gotten himself tangled up into, David does what each one of us are invited to do, and that is instead of continuing to hide from God and run away from him, David goes to God in prayer and very simply tells God about what he has done. Uh, In these opening lines, there are three words which in our ears may sound archaic and especially religious, but when he says them, they're very ordinary words. They are here in the second verse, transgression, iniquity, and sin. Uh, in his language, in Hebrew, there's a family of words, all of which are related to those moments when a person can look at herself, at, at himself and say, I've done the wrong thing. And these are three of the most prominent in that word family. Um, most of us will have heard them at one time or another. Sin is a word that we hear often. Uh, in, in David's mouth, to say I'm a sinner is to say, in effect, I knew the right path to take, but I went down the wrong path instead. Have you ever done that? It means to be a person who's missed the mark or the way. That's what it means literally in Hebrew. To miss the way. To have been going down the path and see there's a fork and there's one path that goes to the left and that's the one that you know you shouldn't take and the one that goes to the right is the, is the path that you ought to take and instead of going down the right when you go down the wrong one, I have sinned. That's what David says. A transgression is a word that's similar now now imagine a boundary marker, a line that has been drawn. On this side of the line is the right. On that side of the line is the wrong. It's been drawn by someone who knows you better than you know yourself. Because uh, God loves us, he says, this is uh, the right side to be on. Don't go over there. But the person who transgresses is someone who says, I knew the boundary and I jumped right over it. Have you ever done that? Uh, iniquity is a Hebrew word that means twisted or bent. Uh, as opposed to straight and right. Uh, It's a word that says, I knew um, what was just, and instead I I, I engaged in iniquity, I was unjust. At the beginning of his prayer, what David does is he decides, I'm done hiding, and instead of covering up what I've done, I'm going to bring it right to God. And so he acknowledges, I knew the right path, and I went down the wrong one instead. I knew where the lines were, and I crossed over the line. I knew what was straight and expected of me, and I was crooked, and I went the wrong way instead. And when he does this in the opening of his prayer, what he offers to us is an example of what every one of us in here is free to do the moment that we see that we ourselves have gone in the wrong direction. And this is a first step for us. And I give this to you not as an idea to consider, but rather as a path for you to follow. And here's the first lesson. It is to admit your guilt when you become aware of the truth that you've been someone other than you ought to have been. When you know that you should have gone that way and you went the other when, when you are aware of the fact that you should have been responsible in this way, but instead you went and left the bike unlocked for five hours straight and now it's been stolen. There will be in you the same impulse that was in me, which was to hide it. But here's the first lesson. With God... You are invited to admit your guilt. Listen, I know that may cause anxiety and fear in some of you because you come into the place that we're at here and you've been carrying a weight of guilt and shame for a really long time. It's so heavy and now as I speak of this, you feel that I'm adding weight. Don't stop listening. There's more to the prayer. We'll get there. For others of us in here will say, well, listen, I, I've not been that bad. Does some of you know the story behind this prayer with David? Does anybody know what it came from? It's bad, right? You're like, oh, how bad could it be? It's worse than you think. David was the king. He saw a woman bathing. He was filled with lust. He went and got her. He slept with her. She became pregnant. To cover it up, he had her husband murdered. And then he hid the whole thing. How's that for treachery? That's pretty awful, right? It's ugly. Now, someone comes to him, a friend, Nathan, and says, I know what you did. I know about it. And in response, <laughs> that's cute. Does he have like a, a prophetic word from God? He wants to? <laughs> All right, let's focus. <laughs> David he only comes before God and acknowledges it because someone uncovered what he'd hidden. And now we might be tempted knowing that to think, I have never done anything that bad and so I don't need to pray like he prayed. Only if I had guilt like that would I have to Stand before God and confess in that way. I've been so much better than he has been. It's probably true that most of us could say that in, in here, in this place this morning, but I, I, I feel compelled to take that temptation away from you because here's the truth. Even though David's particular misdeed is unique, his state before God is universal. Uh, his Deeds are ugly in a way that maybe you will never be ugly before God. But the moment you or I give into the temptation to thinking that what we can do when we've been wrong is to look around in our environment to find someone who's been worse than we have so that we look good before God, you know you're always going to be able to find someone who's worse than you. That's why Cops, that TV show, is so popular. (laughs) But the moment you do that, you miss the point. And it it is a significant point here about how all of us are called, in fact, to look at ourselves when we stand before God. Okay, if there's a continuum of goodness and treachery and David's here, and you're as far away on that line as anyone could be from David, the truth is you both are still equally far away from the holiness and the goodness and the perfection of the God who wants you to stop comparing yourself to other people who you're doing better than and ask instead, how am I doing right now on the path that God, the holy and perfect God has called me to walk on? How am I doing right now with the boundaries that God has put in my life for my well-being and the well-being of others so that I live in such a way that I look like God to other people, I bear his image in the world? How am I doing as a godly woman or as a godly man? Am I patient and kind and loving and gracious in the way that this perfect God calls me to be? Or do I lose it more often than I hold it together? Uh, How am I with justice and, and acting in the straight fashion rather than crooked? The truth about all of us equally is that the moment we begin to set aside comparing ourselves to people who are bad like David and instead ask, how am I doing in relationship to God? What we will all find is that this prayer here is for all of us, that we all need it. Uh, Here, uh, Paul puts it this way, thinking about our tendency to to distinguish ourselves from other people who are doing worse than we are. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3.23, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, this is his way of saying, hey, stop measuring yourself against other people who are failures. And, and if you would just be honest, what you'll see is every one of us are equally far away from the holiness and the perfection of God. And that's why the first step in prayer, which is genuine, is to come to God and to admit your guilt. Now, that's not where it stops. And it doesn't stop there because God has uh, this quality and character which distinguishes him as the true God from every false God that we would ever want to make in our own image. And what I mean by this is through and through, God is merciful and loving and kind and gracious. Every time we imagine a judge, all we think of is someone who sticks it to the person who's done the wrong thing. And we want that for others. We want to run away from it for ourselves. But if we would know the true God, then we would know that he is merciful and gracious beyond what we could ever fathom or imagine. And then if you look back with me at the beginning of the prayer, you see already in the first words out of David's mouth, he acknowledges this is true about God, and he gives us our second lesson for what to do when we realize we're guilty. Look again at the opening of the prayer. Have mercy on me. That's how he starts, because that is the right place for any person who's going to come to the true God. That's the right place for you to start if you're going to come to the true God. You might want to start somewhere else. Or right, you might want to start when it comes to seeing your own failure with, okay, God, give me a chance to make this right. Let me figure out how to undo what I've done wrong, God. And the truth about that is we'll never know how much pain and grief we cause by our own selfishness in the world, all of us. And the truth is, we can't undo it. Just like me trying to figure out how to get a new bike for my friend on the first few blocks. That's the first strategy. David doesn't do that. He doesn't say, God, let me figure out how to make it right. We can go on from there to say, oh God, let me explain why this happened. Oh God, according to all of the circumstances that we're extenuating in this situation. Do you ever do that? Am I the only person who does that? Right? Oh God... You gave me this libido. You made me this way. That's what David could have said. Why did you have to make her so pretty? All of us can always find our way when we acknowledge our own failure to the, the intention to explain it away or to ask for some kind of exemption because of circumstances that were really outside of our control. Or we could say, you know, look, I'll I'll make it all right and can't you just forget this one? None of that is what David does. Instead, he starts off with the right thing, which is to ask for mercy. That's the second step. When you admit your guilt, then you go on to ask for mercy. You go on to say to God... Here, I knew the right way, and I went the wrong way instead. I knew I should have kept my mouth quiet as we got into that argument. I I should have been silent, but instead I I threw that barb at my spouse, and I knew it was wrong, God. Or I I should have been more gentle with my child. Of course they went the wrong way again. They're a kid, but I lost my temper with them, and now I feel so awful about the person that I was. Uh, I, I was deceitful to my friends yet again to try to look better, I, I opened up uh, about that other person and I shared something that's embarrassing just to make myself feel better. I did wrong. When you're ready to say that, then, then you just need to ask for one thing. It's the only thing that will help you. It's God's mercy. A mercy is when an authority figure decides not to make you face the consequences of what you've done, but instead to grant you clemency. That's a legal term. That means to, to decide not Uh, to to make the person suffer because of justice, but instead to extend loving kindness. And that's why David asks for God to act according to his steadfast love. Uh, You know, each one of you know uh, better than anyone the guilt that you've brought into this place. What you can't possibly know enough of is how much love God has for you despite it. How all he feels when he looks at you is this overwhelming desire to have you set aside your pride and come to him honestly so that you can open up uh, what you've been hiding so that he can do the one thing that he longs to do more than anything else, which is to give you his mercy, which is to restore you no matter how treacherous you've been or, or how petty it might seem to other people, but still nonetheless, you have been struggling with this sense that you've been less than you should have been. Do you know one of the things that has surprised me over the years uh, as a pastor is how often I hear stories that would make your head spin about what people have been guilty of, and then right beside them, how I've seen people who have been good in so many ways and just in one or two small ways have still been struggling, and yet they have such a hard time Believing that God's grace could be for them. Is there anyone in here like that? This prayer is meant to open a door for you. To stop running away and hiding from God. And to instead to come to him with complete and utter clarity. And unfold to him without any question exactly what you've done. And, and, and to say it to make your prayer a list of all the ways you've failed. And then the moment you've unfolded it all, to ask God for the thing that I promise you God is joyful to give you, which is mercy. Uh, One of Jesus' followers, John, would later write about what happens when we stand before God like David does here and admit our guilt and ask for mercy. John puts it like this here. These are words from 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is a promise which is completely trustworthy you feel that you've got a stain upon your conscience, on your heart because of who you've been, you come to God and confess. And whatever you've thought of confession in the past, let me make this ordinary. This is a picture of a man just sitting in honesty and opening his heart to God. This is a woman who on her own is able to speak to God honestly. And when you do that, whatever stain there was there upon your conscience, you can count on it. If you confess, God will wash it away. If you're able to unfold it truly, God will take it away completely without any hesitance. In the book of Micah, God is described as unique in being the one who delights in showing clemency, which means that if you do this and you picture God in uh, a begrudgingly way, saying, oh, I guess I'll forgive you. You've got the wrong picture. It actually causes God delight and joy to have you come and confess so he can forgive and make you new. And that's an invitation that's open for all of us. Now, if you do this, Uh, if you finally get up the courage to come to God and tell Him what you've been hiding, you should expect freedom and joy. Uh, Just as hiding puts distance between the relationship, when you're able finally to be honest, you know that what comes is is the gift of restoration and joy. Uh, My friend, uh, Stan... Uh, before I told him and after the bike was stolen, yes, it was absolutely dreadful for me and it got worse every time we played cards and I avoided him. I couldn't look at him. I didn't want to talk to him. I stopped inviting him as much. Uh, The evening came when I finally screwed up the courage to tell him and I was so nervous. I was trying to act natural. You ever see somebody who's trying to act natural? It was was so obvious to Stan. He was kind of smirking at me. It was almost as if he was torturing me. I, I finally figured out how to start. Stan, I have to tell you something. I looked down. It's about the bike. I looked up. He was smiling. Uh, I, I, uh, um, I, I, the bike was stolen, Stan. I, I left it out and someone took it. I looked at him. He just smiled so big. I've known that for a long time, Christian. Christian. I saw you walking to work the very next day. (laughs) And then he says, I knew that thing was going to get stolen before I even lent it to you. And I know there's a cynical person right now who's thinking, I know what happened. Stan saw it in front of the coffee shop and he took it and was torturing his friend. (laughs) And if you're thinking that, you need some serious help, okay? (laughs) Stan said to me, it's fine. He didn't say that because the bike didn't matter. And he said it knowing that I couldn't replace it. But he said it just for one reason, really. He said it because our friendship mattered more to him than his bicycle. And this is a beautiful picture of what is true about God. Your relationship with him, which God wants for all of you, it matters more to God than just about anything else. And the reason I can say this with confidence is I know the story that the Bible tells not just from these prayers but on into the New Testament which is a story of God in Christ choosing to become a person and walk on the path that was reserved for sinners so that God himself in Christ would experience death on the cross for one reason so that he could restore our relationship to himself so that he could have us back. And he did that even though it cost him his own life. That's what happened in Christ, and it's happened for us. And so then we can trust that when we come to God and are honest about our guilt, and when we ask him for mercy, when we do that, that then what will happen is God's forgiveness will be for us, and then we can anticipate this third thing. And this is what you must anticipate. It is that we are then free to accept restoration. And that actually is a part of what we are supposed to do as Christians. Accepting restoration is something that we have to do and work at. If we want to go on feeling guilty for what we've done wrong and own it as if it's our own, we have a fight on our hands with God who says to us, no, you come and you've asked for forgiveness and then I will restore you. But it's your work to accept that restoration. In David's prayer on in verse 12, you can read what he says. It's up here. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. That's another part of what David prays for because what David knows is that it's going to be his heart's work to accept the gift that God gives in his forgiveness and his restoration. And in order for that to continue, he's gonna need God's power to sustain his heart so that he's able to go on accepting this forgiveness. And for all of us here, what we need to work at is accepting God's restoration and moving forward in a new way with a new heart, and that will mean joy. And that's your work. The work of leaving behind your guilt, letting it go, and moving forward so that you can have the joy and restoration that God wants to give you. God wants to bring back to you the joy of that initial moment when you realized you were free, and it went away when you were wrong again. But now when you confess and ask for forgiveness, and God takes that away and gives you this new start, you are called to accept his restoration. Uh, there's a wonderful promise in the book of 2 Corinthians in the fifth chapter that says, If any man or any woman is in Christ, and to be in Christ means to be ready to be restored, then everything old is gone. Behold, everything is made new. Uh, if you've never before considered that maybe one of the reasons there's a lot of distance in your heart between you and God is because you've been holding on to things that you've done wrong and hiding them, would you do this right now? Would you let those things come into your mind for a moment here? You don't have to tell anybody else, but let them come up. Or if you're someone who comes each week and has a really hard time accepting God's grace for you, let whatever causes you to feel that distance come up. And now please listen to my words. These are God's words to you. You are honest to God about those things, and he takes them away. As far as the east is from the west... That's how far God removes our transgressions from us. When we come to him and simply ask for mercy. And I promise you, that's what God has for every one of us. Mercy. Accept it. Accept his restoration. Now, there's a fourth step. And this one's critical. If we ended here and I said, accept the restoration, and now good for you for the rest of your life... You get to be with God forever after you die. Until then, it's just a waiting game. I would miss the truth that is all throughout the scriptures, which is this, that God restores people so that he can use them from now until the time he calls them home. And from now on, every day you have, every single day you have as a restored person is meant to be a day where you turn away from God's grace to the world and then listen, keep your ears open for how God is going to tell you now that you've been restored, I've got some good work for you to do. And that means if you're going to admit your guilt, ask for mercy, accept God's restoration, then this is the fourth step in this true prayer. It is that you must anticipate mission. It is that you must be ready to hear God say, I've saved you because now I've got something good for you to do. And it's true about every one of you. No matter how bad you are, Uh, no matter how boring your life is, uh, no matter uh, where you find yourself in this moment or where you will be one day, what God means is to restore you to use you. How will he use you? I don't know. God knows. Some of you know. Some of you right now are thinking, I know how God wants to use me. He wants me to get involved with children at this church and I can be a servant with kids or with uh, young people, maybe with high school students or middle school students and you already are anticipating the mission that is clear and God wants you to go for it and you should pursue it as he forgives you. And that's where you're going to go. Others of you, who knows, maybe the mission God has for you has never even been spoken aloud in church before. It's just that strange. Maybe you're supposed to move out to California and become a farmer, and there in the fields, you will, you will face the avocado winds in your face. And, and what is that? Who knows? N- nobody's ever said that, but that's what you'll do. Uh, right? And, and, and then you'll embrace some strange new adventure that, God, that no one's ever thought of. But please listen, don't limit, don't limit the great things that God wants to do with you by having a small imagination. And don't you dare think that the reason God wants to make you new again is just for you. It's for the world. And we know this from, from David's prayer too. Uh, in verse 13, after pleading with God to make him new. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, when you fix me, I'm gonna go out into the world where everybody's a mess and I'm gonna talk about how good you are so that other people know the kind of God you are. It's the opposite of self-righteousness. The kind of person who gets right with God and then judges everybody. No, this is somebody who says, fix me, and then I'm gonna go out and say, look, I was this bad, and look at what God's done. That's why he put his prayer right here in the Bible, so that there would be no illusions about David. He's not okay with God because he was so good, but because God was so good. And that was his mission. He continues, deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. You may know that David was a musician. And that was his promise. If you rescue me from this pit, God, I'm gonna write songs about it. And the songs will help people know you. This is what I want for you, and I want it deep down in my heart. It's for every one of you who's hiding and languishing in the shadows away from God to come out and go speak to God. And in your own way, in the way that you alone know that you need to, just tell him. Just admit it. And then ask him for mercy. And, and trust that he'll give it to you. And when he does, accept it. Accept his restoration. Say no to that old you. Let, it, let that old you go away. And then step forward with confidence and joy, seeking the mission that God has for you, no matter what it is. And then, listen, and then when tomorrow you're back at that old habit and shame tempts you, say, no, I'm not gonna give in, and then go and pray again. And do it over and over again. As Renaissance Church, this is the last thing I want to say, as Renaissance Church learns to be a place that prays and grows to follow Jesus, we should become a place that teaches transgressors God's ways through our own gratitude and joy that comes with the restoration that God, not listen, not only has for us, but for the world that he loves. I want you to join me in that. Would you do it? Would you? All right. Let's pray. God, we love you and we love you because you're gracious and because you're merciful and even when that mercy and that grace is overwhelming for us even when it makes us feel like hiding even further we know that through your spirit you pursue us right into the dark places where we run away and I pray now that your spirit would be doing that in every heart here Uh, coming in uh, to each and every one of our hearts to illuminate the things that we've hidden, not so that we feel even more guilty, but instead so we can open who we are to you and receive the gift that you give us in in your forgiveness and in your restoration. And then would you please help every one of us anticipate a mission that you've got for us and help us all together as a church anticipate the mission that you have for us in the future. What we want is to be a group of people who, because we're seeing you, are growing to follow you so that more and more we go out into the world and show you wherever we are called to do that. God, would you give us broad imaginations for how to become your servants in the world? We pray for this now. In Jesus' name, amen.